This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Here's a young man that came to the WWF trying to do things the American way. But what did you people do? No, you frowned on him. He came out here kissing babies, shaking hands, helping old ladies across the street. But he found out that is not the way to do it. Anything in this world that's worth getting, Rocky Mafia found out that the nation stands for it and that it's fighting your way through. Tell him, Rocky. I got three words. Die, Rocky, die. That's the gratitude I get from you pieces of crap. For all my blood, my sweat, and my tears. You know, hey, this isn't about the color of my skin. This is about respect. I became the youngest intercontinental champion in WWF history. And what did it get me? In arenas across the country, I heard chants of Rocky sucks. Well, Rocky might be as a lot of things, but sucks isn't one of them. From 1998 to 2004, and at every carefully timed reappearance since, WWE fans crowded into arenas to yell The Rock's catchphrases along with him, to, as the man himself says, sing along with The Rock. There's laying the smack down. The Rock says, if you smell what The Rock is cooking, uh, Rudy Poo candy ass. Know your role and shut your mouth. It doesn't matter what your name is. Just bring it. The list is practically never ending. But the first one that really mattered for Dwayne The Rock Johnson, the first catchphrase that really caught on, wasn't one of his. The first time the fans chanted The Rock's name, it was an organic, boisterous chant of abject hatred. Rocky sucks. Rocky sucks. The other motto was plastered on a sign that was held up in full view of the camera during Rocky's WrestleMania 13 match. Die, Rocky, die. I mean, Jesus, if somebody hates you that much, maybe it's time to take stock. From Spotify and The Ringer, this is The Book of Wrestling, 25 catchphrases that explain the Attitude Era. I'm David Shoemaker. Now there's going to be the man right there. That's Blue Chipper right there. First third generation superstar ever. And how proud is Rocky Johnson and his mom? When The Rock, a.k.a. Dwayne Johnson, joined WWE in 1996, 
The office took one look at him and saw a surefire hit. He was a former D1 football player at the University of Miami and a third-generation pro wrestler. His dad was former WWE Tag Team Champion Rocky Johnson, and his maternal grandfather was High Chief Peter Maivia, a huge wrestling star in the 70s. Both guys had significant careers outside of the McMahon territory, but their time there obviously lent weight to Vince McMahon's embrace of Johnson in 1996. And just look at him. He's six foot five, 270 pounds of showy muscles and athleticism with a mop of curly hair and a million dollar smile. It's almost impossible to describe Dwayne Johnson in those days and not find yourself falling backward into the mindset of the 1996 WWE front office. Just look at him, he's found money. WWE took the most obvious path forward. A little bit of dad, a little bit of grandpa, renamed him Rocky Maivia and dressed him up in some vaguely Polynesian gear, pastel blues and dangling shells, I think, and streamers. At Survivor Series 1996, Rocky's first in-ring appearance, he came to the ring slapping hands with fans and smiling broadly, deliberately, and leapt impressively over the top rope to enter the ring. He teamed with Mark Merrow, Jake the Snake Roberts, and the Stalker, that's Barry Windham, himself a second-generation wrestler with an incredible resume, who WWE had inexplicably repackaged as a paramilitary jungle fighter, against Crush, Goldust, Jerry the King Lawler, and Hunter Hearst Helmsley, AKA Triple H, who was in this ignominious spot partly as punishment for the curtain call fiasco. See episode one of the show for more info. Rocky Maivia was the star of the show. He ended the match left alone against two members of the other team, Crush and Goldust, and eliminated them both to win the match for his squad. His offense, it must be said, was fairly rudimentary. There were a lot of right hands and a flying crossbody, and his finish was a shoulder breaker, which was not exactly anyone's idea of a dynamic finisher in 1996. Though it should be noted that the move had a few shining moments, it was considered nearly deadly when Kevin Sullivan, yes, that Kevin Sullivan, used it in NWA big-time wrestling in the 70s, and Papa Shango, more on whom later, had a really cool inverted shoulder breaker move in WWE in the early 90s. But nothing about the move or the overall presentation of Rocky Maivia rose beyond the level of a subdued, huh. His look and his moves combined to make him a fantastically dull, generic, wrestling video game character. Which I mean to be both a compliment and not. He was a creator wrestler in the almost literal sense. You would get the feeling that he looked so perfect for the job that WWE thought the world would just immediately see it the same way. And if they didn't see it the same way, well, they were going to say it over and over again to make sure you got the point. I think Rocky might be a show more promise than any other wrestler that I've ever seen come into the World Wrestling Federation. This is a guy... You're talking about second generation wrestlers, you're talking about three generations here. This guy is gonna be phenomenal. Rocky Maivia, he has everything it takes to be a champion here in the World Wrestling Federation. Oh, big power slam. I've never seen anybody come along that's as good as this guy right here. You understand, do you agree with me? He's the greatest, huh? And I, I'm gonna say something right now. You have everything it takes to be the World Wrestling Federation Champion. Go straight to the top. You've got the looks, the charisma, the size, the determination, the heritage. You've got it all going for you. You can't miss. You are gonna be a champion. You've got everything it takes. Less than two months after his debut, 
Maivia beat Hunter Hearst Helmsley for the Intercontinental title on Thursday, Raw Thursday on February 13th, 1997. It was a pretty formulaic match, and Helmsley at this point was not exactly a world beater himself. Maivia won with the schoolboy roll-up. Helmsley was going for a suplex, and Rocky reversed it into a small package. He paid tribute to his father and grandfather after the match. Congratulations, Rocky! Dad, grandfather, my whole family, thank you. And I'll make you and all my fans proud. Have you ever seen something that was just too good to be true? Or not exactly that, more like a too good to be good? Like a band that has great songs and perfect harmony, but no soul? or a beautiful like supermodel of a person with the personality of a mannequin, that was Rocky Maivia. On paper, he was everything a wrestling star was supposed to be. But even though it's scripted, pro wrestling doesn't exist on paper. The crowd at this point was nominally behind Maivia, largely because he looked apart and was going through the Stations of the Cross of an up-and-coming babyface. The small package win was part of the script too, even if it seemed like a mismatch for an athletic freak like Rocky. It shouted, overcoming all odds. But the fans were nominally on board because WWE was painting by numbers. They were going through the white meat baby face motions and fans were responding accordingly. But I mean, they were just going through the motions. If they really thought that Dwayne Johnson was such a sure thing that all they had to do was just wind him up and let him go, well, they were half right. He was a sure thing. But as a fan, how do you root for somebody who's just going through the motions? As soon as you treat somebody like a given, he ceases to be a given. You might think you're playing to the crowd, but really you're just cutting the crowd out of the equation. Nonetheless, they plotted ahead, straight through to WrestleMania 13 and his title defense against the Sultan, AKA Solofa Fatu Jr., probably best known as Rikishi, a relative of Dwayne Johnson. Both are part of the expansive and impressive Anawai family tree, a lineage that encompasses multiple WWE Hall of Famers and countless championships. Rocky has a swagger in this match that hints at where he would eventually end up. But on this big stage, WWE was determined more than ever to lean on Johnson's pedigree. After dispatching the Sultan, again with a roll-up, Rocky was attacked by the Sultan and his manager, the Iron Sheik. The Sultan was also managed by Bob Backlund, truly wild times, and Backlund for some reason did not engage in the beatdown. Anyway, Rocky was bailed out by his dad, making a surprise appearance. Yes, Rocky Johnson. And the two of them celebrated together in the ring. And the crowd was less than enthused. See, the real excitement in this match came before it even started, when the Sheik and the Sultan were coming to the ring. The aisle here is narrow, and fans are just smashed up against the railings to get close to the wrestler, like a Lollapalooza mosh pit or something. There's a big sign in the foreground that says, Vince is God, Bischoff is his bitch, which could probably carry its own episode of this podcast, but suffice it to say, it's a very pro-WWE sentiment. Behind that sign, though, held by an arm dangling over the railing, trying desperately to get on camera, there's a sign that says in giant letters, Die Rocky. Doesn't have quite the same lilt as Die Rocky Die, but it's certainly succinct. Points for that. And then, as Rocky himself climbs into the ring, right over his shoulder at like the 2147 minute mark, there's another one. Die Rocky. The letters are faint, but the message is loud. This should have been Rocky Maivia's crowning moment, but that sign is the only part of the match that has become legend. The fact that it made it onto the air right behind Rocky as he was being introduced, like a counterweight to the bombast of announcer Howard Finkel. 
Vince McMahon, or God as you might know him from the sign, chimes in on commentary. Lady Luck has been riding on the shoulders of Rocky Maivia. And then comes Jim Ross. He's certainly a phenomenal athlete. Six feet five, 275 pounds, a great collegiate athlete at the University of Miami, a third generation athlete, the first ever here in the WWE. And every syllable they say is negated by those two little words on the sign in the crowd. Die, Rocky. Nothing else they said mattered. The truth was right there in front of everyone's eyes. On April 20th at In Your House 14, Revenge of the Taker, Maivia defended his IC title against Savio Vega, who was a member of a then-new group of multi-ethnic heel agitators called, you guessed it, the Nation of Domination. Nation leader Ron Simmons sat in on commentary, and most of the match was used as an opportunity to get over the nation's feud with Ahmed Johnson. At the end of the match, Rocky was tossed outside and attacked by Nation member Crush and counted out. He lost the match but retained the title, and afterwards, Ahmed Johnson ran in to bail Rocky out from another beatdown. Owen's very resilient, very resourceful. And then, <laughs> Owen Hart with a penny combination. wins the Continental title. Maivia eventually lost the IC title to Owen Hart on an episode of Raw, fittingly via roll-up, and then legitimately got hurt in a match with Mankind, a.k.a. Mick Foley. If you watch the match, you can tell Rocky isn't 100%, but it's hard to pinpoint a moment where he gets hurt. The important thing, as Bruce Pritchard had said, is that the crowd, quote, just shit all over him, end quote. Cue the dramatic music. After his injury, Johnson took some time away from the ring and reimagined his character, not as a cookie-cutter superhero, but as an egotistical, rule-bending loudmouth. A wise man once said, know your role and shut your mouth, but if that had been his credo, Rocky would still be wearing streamers and getting booze in Poughkeepsie. He didn't. He emerged on the other end of his injury stint as The Rock, because, as a wise man once said, it doesn't matter what your name is, and never looked back. This is all a long way of saying everything you know is true. Well, if you don't watch wrestling, and if you don't, thanks for listening, you might not know this story, but every wrestling fan does. It's more well-known than almost any WrestleMania main event storyline. Everybody knows Rocky Maivia's story. Aside from the fact that the crowds were a little bit less anti-Rocky than you might think. There were Rocky Sucks chants. Yeah, hit the soundbite. But the overall reaction feels closer to apathy than hatred. And in pro wrestling, that's worse. Now, if I were one for conspiracies, I might suggest that the Rocky was never really hurt. And that the whole thing, the whole notion that an injury gave him time to reflect and reconsider his character, was just a front set up to tell the story of his heel turn. To tell the story of WWE and Dwayne Johnson calling a mulligan on the first act of his career and rebooting him into the stratosphere. And, well, I am one for conspiracy theories, at least in pro wrestling, though there's not a lot of grist for this one. When they were staging his comeback, though, he sat for an interview where he seemed to be in character coming to grips with the lack of response he'd gotten from the crowd up to that point. It's going to be interesting when I come back, to say the least. You know, I've always said the respect is given when it's earned, and if they feel for whatever the reason may be that I haven't earned the respect yet, their respect, then that's fine, I'll accept that, and I will earn it. Just a month after that interview, Rocky came back. He ran into the ring during a match between Farouk and Chains, aka Brian Lee, in a Tommy Hilfiger polo shirt and blue shorts, supposedly to check on a fallen referee. But no, he rock-bottomed Lee, allowing Farouk to get the win. The next time we saw him, 
Rocky explained himself to the world. You know, hey, that's not a black thing. That's not a white thing. I want to make one point to all you jackass fans out there. Oh. Rocky Maivia and the new nation of domination lives, breathes, and dies respect. And we will earn respect by any means necessary. There was a meta aspect to the whole thing. I mean, nobody thought that The Rock was a black nationalist, right? I mean, nobody thought that the other nation members were real life militants either. But for The Rock, when he says it's not a black thing, it's not a white thing, he's right. It's less about the politics of the faction and more about the performance of turning heel. But there was a meta aspect to Rocky's whole run up to that point. He wasn't a professional wrestler. He was a casting director's idea of a professional wrestler. And more importantly, he'd been a failure. That's the story they tell about him. His early career failure undergirded his entire rise to super duper stardom. It's built into his Hollywood A-list narrative. It's a story of failure and of recovery. It's a brick shot into an off the backboard slam dunk. And more importantly than anything, it's a metaphor for the entire transition into the Attitude Era. But it's not unique. It's not unique in the Attitude Era and it's not unique in pro wrestling in any era. Failed gimmicks are part of the deal. And if nobody ever recovered from a failed gimmick, then we'd have basically zero wrestlers. Nobody has fond memories of Isaac Yankum or Husky Harris or Nikki from the Spirit Squad, but those failures went on to become Kane and Bray Wyatt and Dolph Ziggler. There's a million other examples. The Rock story is instructive, but it's been so deeply subsumed into The Rock's narrative that it's almost empty as a personal journey. If you want to understand what it's like to go from the flop to the spotlight, to understand the anger in The Rock's voice when he said the words, die, Rocky, die, you don't have to look far. There's a guy who's been through a lot of the same ups and downs standing in the ring with Rocky when he said it. Ron Simmons, AKA Farouk, leader of the Nation of Domination. When Simmons got his first real opportunity in WCW, it was part of a tag team called Doom alongside Butch Reed, another black wrestler. I called Simmons at his home in Florida to talk about it. I was absolutely thrilled, you know? First of all, I'd already been a big wrestling fan prior to football, okay? Starting out, I'd always idolized, you know, Butch. I've been aware of him having played football and plus making that transition from football into professional wrestling. It was a great opportunity for me and as well as a learning process. And that's the way I really went into that, viewing that, hey, this is going to be an absolute thrill to be under the tutelage of someone that has already been up there at the highest level. Full disclosure, as a kid, I loved Doom. I was terrified by Doom because they were huge and they had these black masks and well, that was about it. There wasn't a lot of planning, and whatever planning there might have been was either unexplained or retconned on a weekly basis. Even the masks. I mean, Simmons and Reed had been wrestlers just before this. Everybody knew who was underneath the masks. So why the hell were they wearing them? There were so many people coming in. It was a revolving door when it came to people that were doing booking there during that time. They had people in there that had no idea of what the hell they were doing at certain points. All right. So that's probably why you saw some of the idiotic things that you did. All right. But now here's the, the catcher with that. Now, when they were doing these stupid and idiotic things uh, during, along the line, they forgot to note that, hey, you know what? These guys are good enough workers. And guess what they did? They pulled it off. 
okay? So that's a credit to myself and Butch for making those things work. Because from the standpoint of a wrestling fan, they looked at it like, well, what in the world are these two big 300-pound black guys that everybody know that Butch Reed and Ron Summers doing with masks on? Well, we made it work. So that's a credit to us for doing that. Now, was it designed for it to work? I don't know, but I know this, it did. And that was, once again, the butcher's credit. He's the one that sat me down and told me from that standpoint, hey, this is stupid, but guess what we're going to do? We're going to get out there and make this thing work. And that's exactly what we did. After Doom split up, Simmons hung around the mid-card for a while, but he didn't have much direction. Until 1992, when out of nowhere, he was tapped to take the WCW World Heavyweight title from Big Van Vader. When you showed up to work that day, did you know that you were going to be world champion by the time you went home? <laughs> Man, listen, I didn't even know where I was going to be on the card, okay? Get along, you're talking about world champion. No, <laughs> we can go from, I'm already knowing that I was already still working my way, and I'm probably six match on the card. So it's been a stepping stone from that point. No, no idea. I walked in that building, hey, when they said, hey, Bill Watts wants to uh, meet with you. And normally when Bill Watts wants to meet with you, brother, it's something like, uh-oh, wait a minute. What the hell have I done now? <laughs> okay, right, because I know I've been showing up on time and done what's asking me. So when I walked in there, I said, hey, you know what? We're going to change the course of wrestling, professional wrestling tonight. You know, mm -hmm. that's his exact word. And we did. You can go back and watch the footage of Simmons beating Vader. You should go back and watch the footage. It's one of the most sublime wins you can watch. You can just feel the energy of the moment without even understanding what's happening. It probably helps that there was no real backstory to understand. The moment has an organic, real excitement because it was almost entirely out of nowhere, for real. And Vader's got him up. Boy, went over his back. Got a jelly by Simmons. And Simmons, he got him up. But almost as quickly as it happened, it was over. After Simmons won the title, he held it for about five months and then disappeared back into the WCW mid-card. I watched almost every episode of WCW television in those days, and aside from the title win, I don't have any old memories of Simmons holding the title. They had one sublime moment, and then without explanation and without giving Simmons a real chance, they reversed course. I asked Simmons about that drop-off. They had blown the doom angle, and now that he finally got a chance to shine on his own, they dropped the ball again, and he was powerless to stop it. Was that the lowest point of his career? Yeah, that was just lowest period of time. Because after that, how the hell do you go from this great moment to where the hell is Ron Simmons at this point, right? So now mm -hmm. you're going to tell me at this point when we're speaking of race that it didn't have something to do with it now, right? You're going to bump Ron Simmons at, out of this epic moment now for somebody that couldn't even carry Ron Simmons' bag? Brother, are you kidding me? Please. <laughs> <laughs> there was guys in there, brother, that look couldn't shine my shoes. 
you know? Yes. So there was there was a period of time in there where, yes, where I was pissed off at, hey, the way things were being ran. Well, once again, like I said, what's my voice going to carry? Okay? Mm-hmm. No, I could have started an epic race thing, but that ain't, that's not my thing, man. And, you know, if I can't with it, get it off of my own work and with my two hands, it's not for me, you know? I believe in me earning the things that I want in life. And that's the way I've done it. And now the way I look back at it, I'm thankful that it did take, it went down that way. Because had it gone on, you know, who knows the way that would have worked out. Because as it did now, that moment lives on. You know, I'm grateful now at this point, now that it went down like that. But back at that particular time, I was one mad as hell person Yes. So there was a low period, as you put it. Eventually, Simmons made his way to WWE, and the powers that be there sold him on an incredible new character, a Roman gladiator-typed guy named Farouk Assad. Think about it. WWE in the throes of the early Monday Night Wars, trying to find their footing against WCW, gets their hand on Simmons, former WCW champion and football legend, and they change his name. According to Simmons, he wasn't opposed to the name change. When it was thrown out to me, and when he was you know, thinking about this gladiator type of guy that he was, the characters and Vince and the creative team were speaking of, in my mind, man, I'm thinking, well, hey, this might be some good stuff. This centurion-looking metal outfit, you know, me coming out to the ring, and, and I've got Sonny, you know, taking it loose and disarming me and taking it off in the ring. And I'm like, hey, this is going to be some awesome stuff. So when I went to get fitted for the outfit and I walked into this guy's uh, studio apartment up in New York and I'm looking around, you know, for the all of the metal and all of the things that is going to take, you know, to fit me. I said, well, where's the outfit? And he points over there and I'm still looking. And he said, I said, well, I don't see anything. He said, that's it right there. <laughs> hanging up. <laughs> I said, are, are you kidding me, man? Or you, you mean this spandex type of uh, blue thing? And then when he pulled the helmet out, I said, oh, God, I was speechless. <laughs> I, absolutely I, I absolutely couldn't say nothing for about five minutes. He, you know, he looked at me and said, you okay? I said, just give me a moment. <laughs> just give me a moment. I'll be all right. <laughs> and that was the longest plane ride back home I think I'd ever experienced. How am I going, what am I going to tell my wife? If you Google Farouk Assad, you'll see numerous references to his quote, blue Nerf gladiator helmet, unquote, which is exactly as ridiculous looking as it sounds. He showed up out of nowhere and attacked Ahmed Johnson and largely due to the fact that the WWE roster was so small at this point, he got a lot of TV time, but sheesh. His manager, Sonny, was incredibly popular, but she had no connection to the character and negated whatever badassery he was able to exude through his uh, blue Nerf gladiator helmet. Three and a half months after Farouk Assad debuted, Rocky Maivia debuted in Turquoise Streamers. It took the nation to reclaim them both. If you will, Farouk was the John the Baptist to The Rock's Jesus, and I'm not saying The Rock is the Messiah, but you won't have much trouble finding people on Twitter to say that for me. Rocky Maivia becoming The Rock is the story they always tell, but it was precipitated by Simmons' next act, transforming from a gladiator into a political activist. That's after the break. 
With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddle boards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! This is about the new nation of domination, okay? And under this nation of domination, I will come into your neighborhood, your homes, your house, and mold your child like I want them to be. Forget those old minds and has okay? Role model. I am what's happening now. I am the future of your child. Welcome back to Survivor Series 1996, which is basically the singularity moment of this podcast, the inception point. Stone Cold Steve Austin wrestled Bret Hart. Fake Diesel and Fake Razor were on the card. Shawn Michaels headlined the show, and his best buddy Triple H lost, stuck in the mid-card. There were two debuts of note that night. One was Rocky Maivia, as discussed. The other one was the new Farouk Assad. Gone was the blue Nerf helmet, and in its place was a black leather kufi cap and a roomy black leather trench coat. What is this? What? Uh-oh. Okay, so they hadn't entirely cracked the code yet. This is a story about bad gimmicks and good gimmicks, and wrestling history has a lot more of the former than the latter. But at least they were acknowledging the ridiculousness that was Gladiator Farouk. Now he'd gone from fighting in the arena to fighting the power, which, okay, that's incredibly corny, but it's kind of relevant because Farouk had some legitimate complaints. How does it feel to be the number one contender for the World Wrestling Federation Championship? Oh, it feels great. I shouldn't have to tell you how it feels. You've seen number one contenders come out here before. Our man Johnson gave it everything he had last night, but no, that wasn't good enough. You know, that was then, and this is now. And I'll tell you what time it is now. It's time for Farouk to become the World Wrestling Federation Champion. And speaking of that, let me ask you a long-awaited question. When was the last time that the World Wrestling Federation had a black man to wear that belt? Can you answer that for me? Answer that question. No. Never. No, you can't answer that. Throughout wrestling history, throughout narrative history, all of the great villains believe that they're the hero. Nation of Domination Farouk was great because he was right. He complained about the lack of opportunities for black wrestlers, and the way his own career had been throttled by the status quo. There was a lot of basic heel shtick, sure, but a lot of Farouk's nation promos would pass for lefty populism in 2022. Farouk would have been huge on Twitter. 
I asked Simmons if people ever heard what he was saying in the ring and said, hey, Simmons is making some sense out there. Hey, they had to. You understand me? There's no question about it. And it might have even pissed off some people because they had no idea that I was going to do that. And like I said, the range of the film that I had, right, you know, they trusted me with it because I was at home with that, man. You know, and a lot of the interviews that I did back then, I tried my best to give making those points of, hey, you know, not only is a man keeping black men back and down, okay, but this has been something that's ongoing and don't seem to ever going to quit. From my standpoint, I was continuously telling the truth. That's for real. When Rocky Maivia joined the nation, it wasn't the first time WWE course corrected. What matters is that it's symbolic of the whole company changing course. It's an acknowledgement not just of failure, but of their responsibility to the fans. Nobody cared about Rocky Maivia, no matter how much they told us that he was a sure thing. In fact, the more they told us, the more fans hated him because they were insisting in the face of failure. This is the central theme of this show and of the Attitude Era, respect for the audience. WWE had gotten so good at doing what they do, the machine had run so seamlessly for so long that they mistook their creative decisions for the fans' approval. WWE, at this point, was changing course. The time Rocky was out with his injury was a time of major reinvention for WWE. Everything was changing. They were putting away their old tricks and having to learn new ones. So Rocky Maivia becomes The Rock. Farouk the Gladiator becomes Farouk of the Nation. You want another example? How about, drumroll please, Papa Shango becoming Kama Mustafa. Let me explain it this way. I was supposed to come back as Papa Shango, okay? I show up to TV as Papa Shango. I'm slimmer, it's more of a serious gimmick. Uh, if you go on the internet, you can search and see. Jerry Lawler did my face paint today and it was gonna be a more serious character. That's the voice of Charles Wright, who played Papa Shango and Kama Mustafa. Papa Shango was an incredible and borderline offensive character from the early 90s, a ghoulish voodoo doctor, a beefcake Baron Samti. He first appeared in early 1992 and was immediately thrust into the main event scene, feuding with Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior. But due to repeated instances of injury and bad timing on everybody's part, and an incredibly negative fan reaction to Shango's magical ability to make people barf green ooze, Shango never amounted to much. But that didn't stop WWE from trying to reboot him in 1997. So all of a sudden, it's like, hey, Vince wants to talk to you. So I go to the office, and Vince says, Charles, change of plans. Mind you, we've been rehearsing, studying, costumes, special effects, getting this character together. And Vince says, Charles, tonight, we're going to put you in the nation of domination. We're going to call you Kama Mustafa. And you and Ron Simmons are going to wrestle The Undertaker. And you're going over. And you know what I said? I said, so Vince, uh, am I getting paid the same? He goes, yes, you are, Charles. I'm like, let's do it then. Wright had played a number of characters in his relatively brief career. He was called the Soul Taker in Memphis before he came to WWE, and then came Papa Shango, and then an ultimate fighter character named Kama, and then Kama Mustafa was an evolution of the latter. But the creation of that character, and of version 2.0 of the Nation of Domination, was all part of the larger rock project. Well, that's a whole nother story, but nobody knew except Vince 
that this kid was going to become the star that he was. And at one time, he pulled me and Ron into the office and kind of explained what was going on and what he was doing after they decided to put me in there instead of as Papa Shango. And uh, he says, once I get people to hate this kid, meaning Dwayne, he goes, when I turn him, he's going to be the biggest thing wrestling's ever saw. In the early days of Rocky Maivia, Simmons didn't spend much time talking with Dwayne Johnson backstage. But he could tell that Rocky Maivia wasn't working. He had the whole world could see they weren't having no success with it, man. You know, they were still trying to push him from that standpoint of, hey, his ancestral background and that wasn't working for him. That wasn't his personality, okay? So when he found his niche, man, was when he came through the nation, okay? He did his homework. He put all of the intangibles together, right? He would take some of the sand from myself that I would say to them in the dressing room and go out there and use them in his interviews and, you know, when he was doing it on stage. He did his homework. He immersed himself into his character, what he thought he should be, not what they thought he should be, okay? He found himself through the nation, all right? That's when he began to flourish, all right? Not jumping off on top rope in no hula and grass skirt. He found himself as the rock, and I'm very proud of him, man. You know, he did his work, and that's the way you like to see guys evolve. There were a lot of parallels between The Rock and Farouk, including the reality and the heel promos they cut. Now, Rocky Sucks wasn't as earnest as some of Farouk's material, but to Dwayne Johnson, it was still serious. And from the moment he grabbed the mic, Simmons could tell he was seeing something special. Oh yeah, you do that all the time, man, when, when it comes to guys and girls, when you see those kind of moments, right? Of course, we get back in the locker room, brother, and we have adulation for each other. It's a weird scene, Rocky Maivia becoming The Rock, standing in the ring with Farouk, a.k.a. Farouk Assad, a.k.a. Ron Simmons, a.k.a. One Half of Doom, and Kama Mustafa, a.k.a. Kama the Ultimate Fighting Machine, a.k.a. Papa Shango, a.k.a. The Soul Taker. From the very first words out of Rocky's mouth, though, you can see The Rock taking shape. It's not the words he says, it's the tilt of the head. The sneer that displaced the silly grin, the steely squint, where before his eyes were just blank pools of action figure plastic. He's got the chin-first posture of a man who will one day main event WrestleMania. When he takes a beat during the promo to soak in the crowd's disapproval, you can see a hint at the comedy chops that would make him a household name. But more significantly, when he looks around, feigning surprise at the booze, What's really happening is The Rock taking the reins, taking ownership of the booze, controlling the booze. In that moment, the crowd hates him more than ever, and he's got them eating out of the palm of his hand. In retrospect, it's easy to see the evolution taking place right in front of our eyes. His wasn't the first heel turn, and it wouldn't be the last. What sets The Rock's transformation apart from the others? Well, for one thing, The Rock is really famous. The Rock's peak was so high that their early failure with him is just more glaring. The Rock was a sure thing, and despite saying it over and over again, WWE almost flubbed it. By acknowledging the Rocky Sucks chance, by giving validation to die, Rocky, die, it wasn't just co-opting reality for a heel turn. I mean, it was that, but more importantly, it was WWE's informal mea culpa for all of the Rocky Mayavias and Farouk Asads and Papa Shango's that had come before. Everybody loves a redemption narrative, and this is WWE's. The curtain call was out of their hands. 
Even the rise of Stone Cold Steve Austin, you know, the built-in narrative is that Stone Cold succeeded despite WWE's plans. But The Rock, The Rock was the Attitude Era moment WWE could take credit for. Sure, they got it wrong at first, but then they got it right. Out of seemingly nowhere, it was like a schoolboy roll-up. The Rock would eventually be known as the corporate champion when he turned heel again, more on that in a future episode, and joined forces with Vince McMahon. Just like the first time, the heel turn pushed The Rock to the next level of stardom, but there's some extra resonance here. He's a real-life corporate champion. The corporation has been implicitly claiming The Rock now for decades. So what about this new Rocky Maivia, this fan-resenting, third-person, speaking, absolutely non-sucking villain? Where did he come from? Well, he came from Dwayne Johnson being himself, the same logic that gave us Nation Farouk and would eventually turn Kama Mustafa into the Godfather. More on that in future episodes, too. If you need any proof that The Rock was lurking underneath Rocky Maivia all along, well, I need to tell you a story about a guy named Flex Cavana. Flex Cavana was a rookie Hawaiian wrestler in Memphis who feuded with Jerry the King Lawler and who was played by, you guessed it, Dwayne Johnson. Flex Cavana was his first persona, the character he took on when he was learning the ropes in Memphis to get ready for the WWE. Just look at the ego. See how comfortable he seems compared to his time as Rocky Maivia. Dwayne Johnson was never a plain babyface. He was never supposed to be boring or obvious. He was always on some level The Rock, and The Rock was always, in some way, Flex Cavana. I'm the one who offered my hair, the pretty Polynesian locks. The Wobby Cup, but I'll tell you what. There's one reason why I put it on the line, and that's because it's something I care about. And this Monday night, the tag team titles are on the line, so it's either the hair or the belt. <laughs> and I'm not losing hair. You know, this Monday night, at the Mid-South Coliseum, it's going to be Big Dark and Pretty himself, Flex Cavana and the Bartman together once again. And I promise all you tag teams, you better get ready for the time of your life. That's the way their best work when you get in there and immerse yourself into the character that you think you should be. And he felt at home doing what he was doing, you know, and he, you could see it in his expressions and all of the little things that he would do. Raising an eyebrow, you know, something that people would consider small. But guess what? Hey, it got over and still over. You know, people's elbow, things of this nature. You know, he, hey, he found his way, man. You know, he found himself. One other thing set The Rock's failed gimmick apart from the other ones. The receipts. You know, there's a lot of gimmicks that don't get over, but most of them don't come with organized chants and cruel signs. The heel turn itself would have had less potency without the evidence. If you go back and watch his old matches, you know, there's less of an organized anti-Rocky movement than you might expect, but there was enough to make a video package and enough for The Rock to make a compelling argument. That's what gave it the power. As far as I hate you chants go, Rocky sucks is perfunctory, but also pretty great. In that famous promo, The Rock says that he's a lot of things, but quote, sucks is not one of them, end quote. But let's be honest, there've been a million wrestlers over the years who didn't suck, or sucks was not one, sucks was one, I don't, sorry, you get what I'm saying. But die, Rocky, die, now that, that was a real stroke of genius. I've always imagined that Die, Rocky, Die was an homage to Cape Fear, the 1993 episode of The Simpsons when Sideshow Bob, the sidekick on the Krusty the Clown show, takes a murderous obsession with Bart, the series' main character. 
When he's on trial and on the stand, Bob is asked about his chest tattoo that says in big letters, die, Bart, die. But Bob says, no, no, that's not die, Bart, die. That's German for the Bart, the. What about that tattoo on your chest? Doesn't it say die, Bart, die? No, that's German for the Bart, the. (laughs) No one who speaks German could be an evil man. Nobody who speaks German can be an evil man is a fantastic laugh line for the record. And there also must have been some of that displaced irony in the way WWE was relating to their fans in those days. You know, they depended on fans for validation and, of course, profit. But fans in the past had been so much more pliable, certainly more passive. General disinterest was about the meanest it got. There's no way you would have seen a die Hulkster die sign in 1985. The die, Rocky die sign was the brainchild of Lenny Bonfiglio, part of the crew of 90s wrestling superfans that all the pseudo superfans like me recognized from sitting ringside at so many WWE shows. Lenny's the one who looked like Rob Zombie, standing in the back of the regulars crew with long black hair and sunglasses. He's the one who brought die, Rocky die into the world. It's fair to say it's one of the most influential signs in wrestling history. We tried to get in touch with Lenny for this show, but we couldn't quite track him down. The last I heard, he lives in Florida and doesn't follow wrestling anymore. Lenny, if you hear this, give us a call. You deserve praise. Nobody in the history of pro wrestling has had such an impact with a piece of poster board and a Sharpie. When Rocky Maivia made his comeback, or when The Rock made his debut, however you want to see it, the first words out of his mouth were, I got three words, die, Rocky, die. Rock claimed it was a symbol of ingratitude, but really it was the opposite. Rocky Maivia was a symbol of ingratitude directed from WWE to the fans. And Rocky knew it. WWE knew it too. That's why this heel turn happened. That's why The Rock happened. Die, Rocky, die. Rocky sucks. They're more than a reaction to a bad gimmick. They're cries of self-actualization. This was the moment when modern fandom became empowered, empowered to reject the storyline dictated from the top. We see it everywhere now. But this, as far as I'm concerned, this was the moment it started. WWE was changing already. They knew they had to. But Rocky sucks and die, Rocky, die. That was when the fans realized they could speak storylines into existence themselves. Before he was the corporate champion, The Rock was known in his first babyface heyday as the people's champion. There's resonance there, too. The Rock wasn't the first wrestler rejected by a crowd, not by a long shot. But this is when the people realized that they could call the shots. Everybody was down with it, man, because, I mean, everybody was making more money. Everybody was making more names for this. So it was a good thing, bro. We were all behind it, including Ron. Ron helped me. Ron helped D'Lo. Ron helped Mark Henry. He tried to help that stupid-ass Ahmed Johnson. They tried to help him, but he wouldn't listen. But uh, yeah, man, it was, it was, everybody was there for The Rock, but we were all there for ourselves too. And so was he. I wrote and reported this podcast. The show is executive produced by superstar Bill Simmons, Sean the Strangler Finnessy, and Jumpin' Juliet Littman. Our producers are B. Brian Walters, Taskmaster Troy Farkas, Big Papa Pump Ben Cruz, and Vivacious Vikram Patel. Sound design and final mixing by Sweet Scott Somerville. The music you hear in this episode is from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Copy editing by Craig the Animal Gaines and fact checking by Dangerous Daniel Comer. Art direction and illustration by me. I'm David Shoemaker, aka The Masked Man. Thanks for listening.